Plenty of seats up here. Thank you. This is the um, the last venue in a two-day conference on Catholic social teaching and criminal justice. But this event has been uh, co-sponsored by a number of offices: uh, the Office for Mission and Ministry, the um, Office for Service Learning in the College of Arts and Sciences, the Theology Institute, the Center for Peace and Justice Education, the Department of Theology and Religious Studies, the Ethics Program, and uh, Campus Ministry. We're delighted tonight to have uh, Curtis McCarty with us and Exoneree, who will introduce our speaker of the evening, Sister Helen Prejean. And Curtis McCarty, spent 22 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. 19 of those 22 years were spent on uh, death row. His life mission has been over the last two years since he's been released, I think it's safe to say, is um, to go wherever he's asked to go and wherever he's sent to speak about the, the innocence, the people that he's witnessed in prison who are there and their, their lives as uh, sacred human beings. And this has been his uh, very important work. He spoke this afternoon, and um, we were all part of his story. And now he is also part of our story. I'd like to ask him to come up and introduce our speaker. Please give Curtis McCarty a warm welcome. Thank you. A few days ago, actually a few weeks ago, uh, I was told that I was going to uh, attend the events here uh, over the last two days. And it has been a great, great pleasure being here. And I thank you so much for, for the warm welcome. In that phone call, I was also advised that I'd been asked to introduce Sister Helen. And I said, uh, I don't know anything about such matters and I was told, um, you know, say something nice about her. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe something embarrassing and, and I said, well that's easy enough because uh, I specialize in embarrassing myself so, and was told, not you dummy, her. So. I don't know any embarrassing stories about Sister Helen. 
And if I did, I wouldn't tell. So. Um, perhaps a, a tribute will serve instead. Throughout the 80s and 90s, while my neighbors and my friends and I sat on death row and watched our country go mad for vengeance, we lost hope. We didn't have anybody who would speak in our name, who would defend us. And eventually there was a voice, and it was Sister Helen. Dead Men Walking was released, and it was well received, and soon people were talking about the death penalty in sober terms. Thinking for themselves instead of listening to what their government was telling them. And it gave us some measure of hope that someday things would change. I think things are changing now. The book became a movie. Susan Sarandon got the Academy Award. And a very bright light was shown on this madness. After my release, I had a hard time making sense of what had happened to me and trying to deal with it. And last February, the Innocence Project decided they knew a way to help me deal with it. And they asked me if I would go out and start attending events like this. On my first trip out to speak to people about the death penalty and about what had happened to me, I went to Lincoln, Nebraska. While I was there, the local theater company put on the operatic version of Dead Man Walking. I was asked to attend and I did. And when I sat down that night, I was so amazed when I looked just a few chairs down from me and I saw Sister Helen sitting there. And I got to meet her and take a photograph And it not only meant so much to me, but to my mother as well. She's dying. She's a good Catholic. And she has always respected and admired Sister Helen for standing up for the unfortunate and the despised. This past weekend, the Oklahoma Coalition Against the Death Penalty had their annual banquet, banquet, and Sister Helen was the keynote speaker. And I knew my mom would want more than anything in the world to attend. So I flew home, and together we went to the banquet. 
and mom finally got to meet sister Helen. who were lost for my mother and for myself I thank you with all my heart ladies and gentlemen please welcome sister Helen Perjean Regarded by most people as disposable human waste, not fit to live among us, not human like the rest of us. We turn a switch and we say they ought to die. And there are almost, what, 230 people condemned to die in Pennsylvania. And it could be in India. It could be in a country far away. We're so separated from the reality of what it means to take human beings and condemn them to death and we know the reasons. <clears throat> we hear it on TV. Look at terrible crime, presenting a crime. This is justice, equal justice. They kill, they die. Look at the suffering of this victim's family. Microphone thrust in their face. What do you want to see happen to the one who killed your loved one? The wife of a policeman. What do you want to see happen to the one that killed your husband? The father of two children. What do you want to see happen to him? We are so in a culture that what is required when people commit violence is that we kill them. It's like breathing in the United States of America. It's only when you go visit another country, when you go like to Europe, or you go to the majority of countries in the world that don't have the death penalty, and that there's a light cast on the United States and you can kind of get out of the goldfish bowl where we're all swimming in the same water and you can take a look at, well, yeah, who, who are we? I want to take you with me on a journey. It's my journey. I'm still learning. It's still unfurling for me. I didn't know I was going to go to death row. I didn't know I was going to get involved. I mean, who becomes a nun and says, hey, mother, would you send me to death row? I mean, really. I'm writing my spiritual memoir now, River of Fire, the spiritual journey to death row. You don't think I set out to go to death row? I didn't even know about poor people. I didn't get it in the whole first part of my religious life that the gospel of Jesus is about being on the side and being in solidarity with people who are poor and with people who are despised and people who are in prison and death row. I thought that was like for some people to do, you know? I thought the really big problems of society, like all the starving people, the people without health care, the people without house, and all, that's God's problem. What we got to do is pray. I went, oh, Jesus, help all the people, you know, just please, God, help all the people. And what I was about was charity. Just practice charity. Be kind to people. And hadn't Jesus said, the poor you always have with you? We never going to, you don't think we're going to tackle the problem of poverty in the world, do you? There's always been that people are rich and people are poor. That's the way it is. 
And if the poor people suffer, well, that it's God's will for them, one day they're going to have a great reward in heaven. More than the rich people even, they're going to have a greater crown in heaven. It'll all be set right. But meanwhile, accept your fate. Accept this as the will of God. Don't resist your poverty. Don't resist the injustice. Just succumb and be a good poor person. And I woke up. And waking up stories are always about grace, always about enlightenment coming sometimes in spite of us. Our community had entered into a debate about where we ought to be as nuns in 1980, and we had our sisters coming up from Latin America and people who were working among the poor challenging us, how come none of us anymore are engaged with poor people? And I got up at the microphone and I said, well, who are the poor? Everybody is poor in the eyes of God. I mean, little rich kids are poor. If their mom and daddy don't pay them a lot of attention and they have all these cocktail parties and they never there, they're poor. Everybody's poor. <laughs> it's like a little girl that wrote an essay one time. Once it was a very poor family. That was the title of the essay, The Poor Family. The mother was poor, the father was poor, the children were poor. The butler was poor, the chauffeur was poor, the gardener was poor, whole family was poor. And of course you write an essay like that if you don't know real people. Meanwhile, I'm living in New Orleans, Louisiana, where our mother house abutted one of the 10 major housing projects in New Orleans, where people, 100,000 people, were left behind in Katrina because people were too poor to have their own resources to get out of town and no buses came for them. That's what happens to you when you're poor. What happens to you when you're poor is you don't have choices and you got to go to the public school because your mom and daddy don't have money for tuition to send you to another school. And you got to live there in the neighborhood where the violence is everywhere and the drug dealers is everywhere because your mom and daddy don't have money to go rent a house in another part of town. You have no choices. You don't have health care. You die young. Sometimes your little brother or sister gets killed in a drive-by shooting like little Willie. Sister Lillian at Hope House started planting. We started planting trees for the children killed in St. Thomas when finally I did move there. When finally I woke up and I said, I don't even know poor people here in New Orleans, here in Louisiana where I grew up. I didn't even know the meaning of white privilege. I was growing up in white privilege. My father was a lawyer, and the only African-American people I knew growing up, growing up as a girl were our servants. I didn't even know their last names. Ellen worked in the house, Jesse worked in the yard. I didn't even know them as people. I never lived with African-American people as my peers. And when I woke up, and the story is the first part of Dead Man Walking, it's all about waking up. And when we wake up, it's always God's grace. And I got it about Jesus. I'm still trying to get Jesus straight. And the more I get straight about Jesus, the more trouble you get into. I mean, you wake up about Jesus and you wake up about poor people and you're going to find yourself at the family table at Thanksgiving and you're going to be taking the other side of the argument. That's what happened to me. Get involved with poor people and controversy follows you like a hungry dog. Tim Robbins said, oh, I wish we could use that in a movie. I'd love to get that line in a movie. <laughs> it's not like you seek controversy. I didn't seek controversy. But I saw what was happening to people. I saw their suffering. 
I saw they didn't have a voice. And so when I woke up, and then I moved to, to the St. Thomas Housing Project. Look how long it took me to get there. But you know what? It doesn't matter how old we are when we wake up. It's what we do after we wake up that matters. And God can work with us at any stage. And that's what happened to me. And I moved into St. Thomas among for the first time. And now I'm giving back into the African-American community. And I'm in the Adult Learning Center and helping people to get their GED and sit at the feet of people and listening to their stories and realizing that it makes all the difference in the world if you are a white person and you got resources or if you were african-american people what happened to the young men with the police when i did the research for dead men walking i found out there were more more uh, uh injustices done by in police brutality in New Orleans and any other city in the United States. But when you live out in the suburbs, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know black young men are being beaten by the police. I didn't know they were planting drugs in their pocket. Not all policemen. Most policemen are good. Most district attorneys are good, and they're doing their role in the community. But there was enough of it that happened that you could see that it was a pattern. Just like now, we see there's a pattern. It's not a fluke that innocent people like Curtis McCarty have been on death row. It's a pattern. It's a pattern. Over 130 people have come off of death row because they say by college students like you in Innocence Project to go and uncover the evidence that was hidden or the original police report that pointed to another suspect. And they stumble upon cardboard boxes in warehouses and go, oh, here's the evidence. He's been saying for 15, 17 years he's innocent. So now we're shaken as a society. We know that we really do make a lot of mistakes. And so there's not the same enthusiasm for the death penalty as we used to have. Because I thought when I got into it, I thought we had the best court system in the world and you got all these appeals. How could you possibly have an innocent person? My second book is called The Death of Innocence, and I accompanied two human beings, and I watched them die. Dobie Williams, an African-American man from Louisiana with an IQ of 65. If Louisiana had waited two years to kill him, the Atkins decision that said you can't execute the mentally retarded would have saved his life. But it took the Supreme Court many, many years to finally say, no, you can't execute mentally retarded people because of the way they interpreted the Constitution. Everybody reads a text with a pair of glasses on. Whenever we interpret a text, be it the Bible or be it the Constitution, we have something guiding us of the way we interpret what that text means. And then to watch Dobie die, and then Joseph Odell, the second man in the story. And I'll talk a little bit about that toward the end, <clears throat> because providentially, the death of Joseph Odell in Virginia and Italy got involved is what got me involved in a dialogue with Pope John Paul about the death penalty. And I've been wanting to talk to the Pope for a long time about the death penalty. I've been at this over 20 years, right? Dialoguing with my church about the death penalty. Let me tell you the story. And so what happened? when I'm now planted in the soil among poor people and looking at life from a whole other different perspective of the way things happen with the kids coming in to our adult learning center. Well, how far did you get in school? 
well, 11th grade. I said, oh, you only have one more year to go and you'll graduate. Look, let's see what your reading level is, let's see what your math level is, and we'll work with you on an individual basis. Get you up to speed, you take the GED. And the kid could not read a third grade reader. And he's in the 11th grade in a public school in New Orleans and he's gonna be bumped out the next year. And he can't read. How have we allowed this to go on so long? And now at last, do you believe this? At last, we have a leader who says we're gonna tackle the education problem in the United States. And the people say, no, 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 we gotta get all the economic things done before we do the healthcare thing, before we do the education thing, before we do the energy thing, get all the business stuff straight first, okay? You're doing too much. Who has held up to us before? We've gotta deal with the huge dropout rate, especially in our inner cities, of kids that are dropping out and who are not finishing high school. Who has had the passion for that before? Do we? And it's while I was there that one day coming out of the Adult Learning Center, a friend of mine who worked in the prison coalition office bumps into me. It was so casual. It was so God-driven. You gotta watch God. God's sneaky. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. Part one. I bump into Javit Colon. He said, hey, Sister Helen, you want to write to somebody on death row? He had his little clipboard, had his little project going, you know. It was 1982, 82, that's right. We hadn't executed anybody in Louisiana in over 20 years. Nobody had. There was an unofficial moratorium on the death penalty in the United States. We didn't think we were going to be killing people anymore. I didn't even know the Supreme Court had put the death penalty back in 1976. It was one more of those social justice issues while I'm practicing charity and didn't care about social, I never even noticed that they put the death penalty back. Did you? Well, you weren't born yet. <laughs> hey, Sister Helen, you want to be a pen pal, somebody on death row here in Louisiana? Sure, I said. And he said, okay, here's his name, here's his address. 90455, I never in my life addressed an envelope. The address is death row. I mean, really, Curtis, it must be depressing to read your mail when you look at the address. I live on death row. And I wrote the man a letter. And you know what the problem was? He wrote back. <laughs> and there was an encounter. And that is where the gospel of Jesus happens. We need the classes, we need to study, but it's the encounter. How do we have the encounter? And he had no one to visit him. It became very clear as he wrote the letters. His mother couldn't come. She was mentally not very stable. She'd come to death row one time and almost had a mental breakdown. She couldn't stand to walk in the building that had death row over the door where they were gonna kill her son. Her life had been a hard life a very hard life, and she couldn't bear to go. And he said, Mama, that's okay. Mama, don't come see me. It's all right. You just write to me sometime, Mama, and you pray for me. And I realized from his letters he had no one. He didn't even ask me to come. But I'm, I'm meditating on Matthew 25 now, where all the words in Scripture are like fire because now I'm open, and now I'm ready. And here's Matthew 25, which I'd read a gazillion times, where I'd given retreats, where I'd preached on it. 
I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was in prison and you came to me. Boy, You know the feeling? You ever had it? The words of scripture in our lives intersect and suddenly we know that's me. It's me. It's calling me. And so I wrote him. I just said, I'll come visit you sometime. Sneaky part of God, part two. I get this letter right back almost immediately. He's so excited, a visitor, a visitor. You wake up every morning in the same six and a half by eight foot cell with the green walls and the green bars. Every morning, same thing, deprived of sensory uh, stimulation of all kinds. Most people excluded from human contact of all kinds. Families drop off or they don't have cars that work and people are alone and condemned to death. And he sends the forms to me and he said, look, you, you know, you had different categories of visitors like friend and relative and girlfriend. And, and he said, look, I'm a Catholic and you're a nun. Would you be my spiritual advisor? Sure, I say, I'll fill it in. And no, I got no felonies for them to check me out and all and send it in. And I don't know that two and a half years from the time I write that letter, they're going to kill him in an electric chair at midnight. And at quarter to six in the evening, everyone is going to have to leave the death house except the spiritual advisor, who is going to be me. And the way God's grace works in us, we have a maxim in our community, never leap ahead of grace. Grace comes up under us as we need it. And that has been my journey thus far about God's grace. And when the time came, God's grace was there. But let me tell you how it happened. Let me tell you the story. Because if we can share our experiences with each other, the like white hot raw experience of what it felt like and what we learned, this is the way we help each other. Because we bear it. We just open it and say, let me tell you what happened to me. And so first it was the letters. And then he wrote back. And then I say, I'll come visit you. And then I go to visit. <gasps> And when I wrote Dead Man Walking, I wrote it in present tense, and I take you with me. I just take you with me, and I describe everything as I'm experiencing it, so you can experience it too. Reading is a very holy, prayerful thing to do, because you don't have to debate anybody. You don't have to, you know, say, yeah, but I think this. You can go to a quiet place, you can bring in all these experiences, and get information along the way, and you can maybe change your whole life, maybe. It's a free act. Just saying, let me lay it out to you and follow me now on this journey. And I want to tell you right now, I want to invite you to follow up tonight, to read the journey in the books, and I'll help you get them. Those of you that don't have money tonight will work out something. I want you to read it because I want you to be in the quiet place to come. I'm going to give you bits of the journey, high points of the journey tonight, but I want to invite you to come with me in a very deep way in those books. And when I visited with him, 
Prayer contemplation, you know, happens sometimes we're on retreat, we're in a quiet place, or we're praying in a chapel. Contemplation and God's presence also rips out to us in the midst. And it happened to me when the guards brought me in, locked me in a room, said, well, go get your man. I hear him dragging his leg irons across the floors. They bring him into a thing as big as a telephone booth, lock him in, his hands cuffed to a belt around his waist. And I looked up through this heavy mesh screen and I looked into his eyes. And I thought, my God, he's a human being. He's a human being. I mean, I guess I thought his face would look different. I guess I thought people who murdered other people, something changed, you know, in their face. There was a hardness. And I looked and he said, Sister Helen, you drove all that way to see me. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Two hours flew by. Next thing I know, the guard saying, time's up, ma'am. Time for you to go. I'm driving back to New Orleans. I found out in that first visit that Patrick Sonier had a brother, Eddie. <clears throat> And that Patrick had gotten a death sentence and his brother Eddie got a life sentence. And I thought, how does that happen? How is he a murder? One brother gets death, one brother gets life. I didn't know how the death penalty worked. I didn't know how the criminal justice system worked. I didn't know how the lawyers worked. I didn't know what happened to you if you're poor and you get a, a lawyer assigned to you who doesn't have any money in Louisiana. Indigent defenders had to get their money from speeding tickets in New Orleans. People don't speed that month. We got no money for lawyers. <clears throat> what do you do? Go around and encourage everybody to speed so you can, you know, have enough for the lawyers for poor people? It's never been fair. It's never been fair. And it's one of the reasons why the Deep South states do 80% of the executions. We are the practitioners of the death penalty and everything in the culture upholds it. People have poor lawyers who don't have money, don't have resources appointed to you, and so you don't have a chance when you go to trial. Are some of them guilty? Are most of them guilty? Yeah. Are some of them innocent? Maybe a great deal of them innocent? Yeah. But we don't know. And I meet the man, Patrick Sonier, and I'm riding home, and I thought he didn't even tell me what he did. He didn't even talk about the crime yet. And then I think, Helen Prejean, the first time you meet somebody, you're gonna trust them enough to tell them the worst thing you ever did in your life? I thought, it's gonna take trust. And I will visit him and I will be faithful to visiting and accompanying him. But as the months went on, I began to visit his brother as well, because while you make the two and a half hour drive from New Orleans to visit, why not see the brother too? I began to visit Eddie as well. And so then one day, I just went over to the prison coalition office because I didn't want to be naive. I know somebody's been murdered. And I'll wait for him to tell me when he's ready, but I don't want to be naive. And I said, could I see some background information on the Sonia case? And they pull out all their little legal files in these bland looking little manila folders, legal files. And there's a stack of them on the table. And I open the one on the top of the heap. And look into the faces of two beautiful teenage kids. And their family had sent in the prom picture because the newspaper had asked for the picture of their son 
David LeBlanc, 17, their daughter, Loretta Bork, 18, and there she is in her evening dress looking beautiful, and there he is standing proud in his tuxedo and his brown, luxuriant, curly hair and his arm around Loretta's waist, the two of them smiling, and the headline, Teenagers Found Murdered. And now I'm looking into the faces of who Pat and his brother Eddie killed, and I'm their spiritual advisor. So I'm now implicated in this circle of suffering and evil and loss. Like I thought, what am I doing? And I read this story. And it's, these are horrible stories. These are unspeakable stories. These are stories we, we don't even want to talk about a whisper unless maybe it's going to come close to us of parents that love their children and on a Friday night saw them off to go to a football game, a homecoming football game in a little town of Thibodeau, Louisiana, and it's the last time they see their children alive. And now I'm descending into, there are two arms on this cross of the death penalty and it stretches us, and on one of the victims' families and what they suffer, and the other is the perpetrator, with most of us in our society saying they deserve justice, they did the crime and they ought to die. And here we are trying to follow the gospel of Jesus. Here we are, and here I am now looking into the faces of these kids. And I had that nudge, I had that. I thought, oh, the parents, this is every parent's worst nightmare. The kids went out on a November night, a Friday night for football game. And the next time they saw them was the fathers identifying their children in the mall. And I thought, and I'm, I'm with them. I'm the spiritual advisor of them. And the nudge was, I ought to reach out to that poor family. I ought to do something for these parents. Everybody was Catholic in this. The Sonier brothers were Catholic, me, the Bork who lost their daughter, the LeBlancs who lost their son. And I thought, I ought to. I ought to go see him. I ought to try to do something. And then I held back because I was scared. I thought, they're not going to want to see me. I'm a spiritual advisor to the one who killed their kids. I could just feel their anger, their hatred, their rejection, saying, what? You're the spiritual advisor to the two people who killed our children? You're coming here and asking us what you can do for us? My daughter didn't have a spiritual advisor in her last moments of life before she met God in eternity. Where were you then for my daughter? What do you want? What do you think you can do for us? And I stayed away. I stayed away because I thought it was hopeless. I thought they'd never want to see me. And it was cowardice. It was cowardice. My editor, sometimes your editors are your spiritual directors. And when I did the first draft of Dead Man Walking, I downplayed this terrible mistake of not reaching out to the victim's families. And he's looking at the text and he goes, well, Helen, that was a pretty big mistake, wasn't it? I mean, you know, with the people on death row and the people, and they were the, the, the parents, and, and you didn't do anything. You didn't write them a note, you didn't do anything. It's a pretty big mistake. He kind of downplaying it. He said, it was cowardice, wasn't it? Nothing like naming it. I said, yeah. He said, you were afraid, weren't you? I said, yeah. He said, that's what cowardice is. We don't do something because we're afraid. He said, look, when you write your book, you take people in the mistakes you made as well as you on the peaks of the waves when you're doing things right. 
and I was so in over my head and I did it so wrong and I met the victim's families at the worst possible time you could meet a victim's family. It couldn't have been more polarized. It was at the pardon board hearing, which is a public hearing. It's the closest we come in modern society to being in a Roman amphitheater when you put your thumb up if you wanted somebody to live or your thumb down if you wanted a gladiator to die. When you go in, you sign the book. What side you on? Are you on the side of the state and you want the execution to proceed? Or are you on the side of the defendant and you want to ask the pardon board to grant them clemency and let them live? Let them die, let them live. And we had some of the pardon board hearings in where they put blue chairs on one side, red side on the other. Life, death. Where to vote? What side you on? And of course, the victims' families were caught in this current. They're told by the DA, this is the last legal hoop we jump through before you get your justice. All their friends are with them. Everybody's on that side. Three of us are there to ask that Patrick Sonier not be killed. And that's when I met the victims' family. And the Borg family, who had lost their daughter, were furious at me. We met, we bumped into each other outside the building while the pardon board was voting. And they averted their eyes and they walked past me quickly in a stony silence. And right behind the Bork family who had lost their daughter were the Lebois who had lost their son and up there walking and inside I prepare because I go, this is gonna be terrible and I deserve their anger. I deserved every bit of it I got because I had done it all wrong. And surprise by grace. And here comes Lloyd LeBlanc with his wife, Yule. He walks right up to me and he says, Sister Helen, all this time you've been with those two brothers, visiting with them and you never once came to see us. You can't believe the pressure we're under for the death penalty. I'm shocked that he says he's under pressure. I didn't know victims' families under pressure. What pressure? He said, sister, I pray in this little chapel. Come pray with me sometime and you need to come and you need to walk with us and you need to come with us and understand what path we're walking on. And so I moved to the other arm of the cross with the victim's family. And Lloyd LeBlanc was my teacher. It had to do with his graciousness, not my virtue. I had done it all wrong. I did not deserve even to be with him. And I went in this little chapel. He kept vigil before the Blessed Sacrament. Well, by the time I found out, you know, I said, oh, well, look, I'd love to come pray with you. What time do you pray? He says, well, four to five in the morning, you know. And, so I said, oh, okay, I'll be there. <clears throat> so it meant going to Baton Rouge, spending the night with my sister, and then setting out at 2.30, driving across the Atchafalaya Swamp. It's a huge swamp to get over to St. Martinville, where there in the parking lot, 4 o'clock in the morning, stands a man waiting to go into the chapel. This man, Lloyd LeBlanc, who has graciously said, come pray with me. And I kneeled down by his side, and the journey begins of learning from this man what it means to enter into a journey of forgiveness and to do what Jesus said. Not without struggle. No victim's family I have ever met, ever without struggle, arrives at a place where they say, oh, I do not want to see that person die. Almost everybody begins with anger. But the thing about Lloyd LeBlanc, 
was that he said the way he put it to me was, I've always been kind from the time I was a little boy. It's who I am. I'm a kind person. I'm good with my hands. I fix things for people. You see all these lawnmowers and all on my lawn? It's because I fix things. People bring me their lawnmowers. People bring me their cars. I love helping people. It's who I am. And everybody's saying to me, Lord, Lord, you got to be for the death penalty. They killed David. If you're not for the death penalty, Lord, it's going to look like you didn't love your boy. That's the ultimate penalty. You're not going to ask for the ultimate penalty? Didn't you love your son? And he said, all these people telling me this. And so inside myself, I'm going, yeah, 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 I want him dead. I want him dead. But he said, I didn't like the way it made me feel. I didn't like the way when the hatred and the bitterness came in, it, it killed me inside. And he said, you know what? They killed our boy, but I'm not going to let him kill me. I'm going to do what Jesus said. He was the first one who taught me that the act of forgiveness is self-preservation. It is not letting the love inside of us. It's not letting our identity be changed. Lloyd LeBlanc taught me that. He was the first. I'm not going to let him kill me. Because if I get caught in the hatred and the bitterness, well, then I'm not myself anymore. I'm lost too. And he prayed then. And he set his face then. And the grace of God met him on that road. And Lloyd LeBlanc, he was the first from whom I learned forgiveness. And when we prayed, and we prayed the, more, uh, the rosary, and it was a Friday morning, and it's just like Lent now, and it was a sorrowful mysteries in the life of Jesus, his passion, his agony in the garden, his death, his abandonment, and I'm kneeling by a man who is going through the journey of the passion and suffering and death of his son. And I noticed as we said the intentions for the rosary that he was praying for everybody, including Mrs. Sonia, Patrick and Eddie's mother, who lived in St. Martinville and who couldn't even go to the grocery store because she'd hear people saying, there she is, that white trash woman. Her boys killed the Bork and the LeBlanc children. What's she doing in this store? What kind of white trash mother is she that could have sons that could kill two people? And people were cutting up dead animals and they're throwing them on our front porch. Do we ever think that when we in society take a person and condemn them to death and say they're not worthy to live, what happens to their mothers? What happens to their brothers and sisters? As if we can control the hatred, like you can drop a big drop of red dye in a bowl of water and say, don't spread now, don't spread. We only want to kill him. It's legal, it's legal. The Supreme Court said this is okay, he did the crime, we're gonna kill him. Now don't hurt the mama, don't hurt the mother, don't hurt the family. How do you contain the hate in a community? Hate the son, hate the mother. And Lord LeBlanc is praying for Gladys Sonia. He's praying for her. And before this story is over, I'm going to find out about him, that Gladys Sonia hears a man on her front porch one day. Because she opens the blinds and she sees that it's a man standing there and that he has something in, her, in his hands. And she looks very carefully and then goes around to that front door and opens it. And it is Lloyd LeBlanc. And in his hands is a basket of fruit. And he hands it to her and says, Miss Sonia, I know you've been having a hard time in this town, 
I'm a parent just like you, and as parents, we really don't know what our kids might do, and I don't hold you responsible for the death of our son by your boys. And here's my phone number, and if you need me, you call me. The only one in the town. And along this road, I have met victims' families. I went then to murder victim support groups, and the big shock there was how many people said, as you went around the sorrowful circle of everybody telling the story of their pain, so that the room couldn't even hold any more pain, of how many people said that our friends stay away from us, nobody comes near us because they don't know what to say to us and they don't want to say the same thing, that they're being abandoned too. The people on death row are pariahs on one end and here the victims' families, they said even people from our church, they stay away from us. One woman said, even my good friend, I'm talking to her and I want to talk about Susie who was killed and she says to me, oh Mary, that happened a long time ago. You should really be past that by now. People can't stand to hear people talk about their pain and their loss, and so they stay away like you stay away from a forest fire. So victims' families often are left alone. And is not our call in the gospel of Jesus to bring our arms around, murder victims' families, to accompany them, to support them, and our arm around the perpetrator? But boy, that's much harder to do. Much harder to do. This man, Patrick Sonier, and his brother Eddie, who are they that they would kill two teenage kids? They were found shot in the back of the head. And as the details came out about the murder, five teenage couples had come forth saying, they did that to us. Nobody was killed. But what had happened was the kids after the football game had gone to a lover's lane near a sugarcane field in one of these little towns around St. Martinville. And the brothers are out in the field and they have 22 rifles and they have flashlights and they're rabbit hunting and they'd watch the cars to pull up. And they go to the car and the kids are alone in an abandoned place. And here these two men say, hey, you kids are trespassing. We're the security guards. We work for the people that own this land. We're gonna have to bring it to the owners. Do your mom and dad know where you are tonight? The kids are of course terrified. They're alone. There are no other resources they can call. And then that would lead to, well look, tell you what, if the girl has sex with us, we won't report you to the owners. So they're raping the girls. The two men I'm visiting, whose spiritual advice I am are doing these things. But this night, what changed? What happened? Lloyd DeBar, the father, said, I just want to know what happened. What happened? Why did they shoot our kids? And there the kids are found lying face down in that sugarcane field, and they've both been shot in the back of the head. Gone forever. Ripped out of life. Lloyd DeBar said for many, many years when he went to Sunday Mass, he couldn't kneel behind teenage kids because he couldn't bear to look at the back of their heads. And Patrick and Eddie Saunier, what makes people do such unimaginable evil? 
I begin to learn like good is a current, like in a current in a river, evil is a current that's like a current in a river, and you get caught on a current of evil, and that is what happened that night. You'll have to read the book to get the whole story. I'm going to just give it to you. That Patrick was executed as the one who killed them that night. In fact, Eddie, the brother who got the life sentence, is the one who killed them that night. He was a very volatile, emotionally distraught, very mentally unstable young man that night. And he had a gun in his hand, and he killed those two kids. How did it happen that one brother was killed and the other brother got life? It's an involved story, and you'll have to get the details. But I'm just telling you the way, and as I learned of it as well, I go, oh my goodness, I'm accompanying Pat here now as the executioners, and Eddie's the one who did it. And in a last ditch effort to try to save his brother's life, he wrote to the governor, and it came out in the Times-Picayune in the, in the New Orleans newspaper, the day before Patrick's execution, brother to governor, please, you killed the wrong man. But it was too late. The courts had had everything. They'd done all they were going to do. Nobody was going to believe Eddie Sonia. They're going to say, hey, you didn't have a death sentence, and now you're trying to save your brother from a death sentence. They could never expect that Eddie Sonia could be speaking truth. He's just trying to save his brother, right? Who can believe him? How do we get to truth in these trials? Who are the truth tellers? Who are the ones lying? If you have two co-defendants and there are no other witnesses to a murder, if one gives state's testimony against the other, they get a reduced sentence for saying that. How do we know they're telling the truth? Or do we care? As long as we get one of them. And I heard people saying that about the Sonia case. Well, they got one of them. Wish we could have gotten both, but we got one of them. And that will do. And now I'm with Patrick. In this unbelievable journey of a man, two and a half years, accompanying him, praying with him, talking to him, talking to him straight, helping him to take responsibility for what he did and to know his dignity. That he is worth more than the worst thing he ever did in his life. That each of us is worth more than the worst thing we've done in our lives. If there could be a big screen up here tonight, and it could show in the lives of each of us the worst thing we ever did in our lives. And then we would be told, that's your essence, that's who you really are. And if the gospel of Jesus means anything, it means that we are all worth more than the worst act of our life. True, we don't kill people. And I learned when I lived in St. Thomas, I'd never been in situations where violence was so close. I'd never been in situations where drugs were being dealt and people had guns or arguments broke out and tempers flared. And when you have a gun, you go bang, bang, bang. We watched Kenny Singleton be killed on the sidewalk right outside the sister's place where we stayed in the apartment in St. Thomas. Over sunglasses, they got in an argument and one of the guys went up to the apartment, got a gun, bang, 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 Kenny's dead. And we looked in vain for it to be covered in the newspaper, but it was one more black man in New Orleans being killed and it wasn't newsworthy. And now I'm with this man, Patrick, and there's a date of execution. 
and he's moving toward that date, and the clock is ticking, and I can't make heads or tails of it with my mind. There's no logic that can hold this. Oh my God, we're moving toward the date of his death, and they are going to kill him. And I thought, surely something's going to happen. Surely something's going to happen. We got some good lawyers in at the end, and they could see all the mistakes that were made in this case, and they're going to bring it to a court. Surely the court is going to see. And then I learned about procedural bars. You could show innocence, but if you show it too late, no court will hear it. Read the Joseph Adele story in Death of Innocence. The man finally even had Barry Sheck say, I'll do a free DNA test for you that will show that in fact you did not rape and kill Helen Chartner and no court will allow the test to be done, they said, too late. Timing enters into these cases. You should have gotten a lawyer to say this sooner. He goes, I don't have a lawyer. I'm poor, I don't have a lawyer. Well, you should have gotten a lawyer. Here's the procedure, you're doing it too late. And we kill people by procedure. And in Death of Innocence, I hold up the courts. I hold up Justice Antonin Scalia, a good Catholic judge who goes to Mass every Sunday, who graduated from Georgetown, and watch the way he thinks, and look at his jurisprudence, and he holds fast to procedure over justice. Procedure is ultimate. And it's sad that you got a lawyer so late, you really should have done it a lot earlier in the process. In Louisiana, if we don't get pro bono attorneys to even take courses, cases of people who are sent to death row, they are killed without even having a lawyer. To have a federal appeal which then looks at what the state court did with your case to see that your rights were upheld. I had been appalled at what happens in the courts. And I had, I went into it my daddy a lawyer, I just thought, you know, the United States of America, I mean, we're gonna do it right. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know the way the courts worked. I didn't know about these procedures. Roger Coleman in Virginia, his lawyers in his federal appeal filed the paper one day late and they killed Roger Coleman because they filed the papers 24 hours late. What does this mean for us? Thomas Merton, Trappist monk, one of our heroes and mystics in this country said, when the world ends, it'll be legal. Make it legal. Look what happened with Guantanamo and Alba Grave and Alberta Gonzalez and the White House and the Geneva Conventions and what you can do to torture suspected terrorists. Make it legal. Get the legal team in here. Let's see what we can do. What's allowed? Well, you can tie people up in excruciating positions. You can deprive them of medicine. You can deprive them of food. You can deprive them of sleep. You can make them stand for 72 hours. That's not torture. That's enhanced interrogation. Enhanced interrogation, waterboarding. I want to say to you, I have to work this out. It's a hypothesis. I believe we move so easily into the torture of suspected terrorists at Guantanamo because we are already torturing our own people on death row. And is it torture? 
Well, when you read Dobie's story and you see how he's brought to the death house to be killed, and twice he gets within an hour and a half of death and gets a stay of execution, is brought back to his cell for a month, brought back to be killed again, says goodbye to his mother and his family, gets within an hour of death, and given another stay of execution to determine another legal point in his case, and he's in his cell for a week, and then he's brought in to die. And he says, Sister Helen, I can't go anymore. I can't summon the courage to go through it again. I need it to be over. Everybody's nightmare on death row is the same. Curtis here in our midst watched as people were led to execution right in front of him. This is not us, really. This is us acting out of fear. This is us being told, oh, we got to kill some of these people. No. No, we don't. We need to be a society that chooses life. This is about death. This is setting up a death machinery. Using millions of dollars to keep a death machinery in place when we could be helping kids with drug problems in the clinics, and we could be helping kids in Head Start, we could be helping people with health care, and we could be working with at-risk kids in these schools. You want to see crime go down? We got to get to the roots of it. We need to be a society for life who cares about life for all the people in this society. And now I'm with this man and they're taking him to his death. And we're counting down the hours and I'm with him. And it was just when Susan Sarandon, when we were doing the film, and by the way, people say, hey, did you like the film? A lot of people that write books and they do a film, they hate the film. I love the film. Because I worked closely with Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. They did this film because they knew we needed to have another kind of discourse going on in the society before Dead Man Walking. The, dead, the death penalty films were, did they do the crime? Okay, they're guilty. Okay, in with the execution, justice is done. And they changed that with Dead Man Walking. And after the film of Dead Man Walking that came out, got its Academy Award in 96, on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th, the Academy Award, four nominations, told the world about this and brought it out to the world. Then the films began to change, the Green Mile, much more reflective about the death penalty than simply, you did the crime, you executed justice is done. But when you're there, when Susan was there, when we are in this last days and last hours counting down with Patrick Sonier, and I knew his soul. I had accompanied him. I knew his remorse. I knew his sorrow. I knew his was not the hand on the trigger, but he never said he was innocent because he was involved with what they were doing with those teenage kids that were wrong and one night Eddie lost control. And he felt responsible and indeed he was responsible because he was part of it. And how when they would dim the lights on the tier at midnight and he would kneel down with his Bible and he would pray for the kids, for their parents. Do you ever think, I began to think, what if I did something that was irreparable and I couldn't get it back? Like maybe one night I'm driving home and I'm driving a little bit too fast and it's in the dark and a kid jumps out in front of the car and bang. And all of a sudden I look and I've killed a child. I can't get it back. I can't get it. What's it like to do something that you can't get back? And he would kneel and he would pray. And he was preparing himself to meet God. And I was there with him. 
And so when you move then into the last hours, it's all the word Susan kept using and I used to, it's so surreal. It's not like being with somebody in a hospital who's dying and you can see them dying. You can see them fading. You can see them not talking. You can see them not eating. You can see them getting weaker. He's fully alive and he's drinking coffee and he's talking to me until they take him to kill him. And I could not get my mind around it. And the place is creepy because it's the tiles are polished. Everybody gets very polite. The prison psychiatrist is coming up to Pat and saying, you need a Valium or anything? Chaplain's waiting to bless him for him to go to confession again if he wanted to go to confession again, receive communion, receive the sacraments. And I couldn't get my mind around it. I couldn't believe that he was alive and then they were going to come. You ever think of the guards? Ever think of the people who do the killing for us, the three people who have been killed here in Pennsylvania? There were people like us who had to do the killing that night. They go and they pray God that the guy goes peacefully. They don't want a Lewis Williams case on their hands that this guy in Ohio, he had met with his lawyers, he seemed calm, he was reading his Bible, and the guards went to get him out of his cell to bring him down to the lethal injection chamber, and Lewis Williams went nuts. And he grabbed the bars, and he was going, please God, no, God, I'm innocent, don't let him kill me. And he's looking in the face of the guard saying, don't kill me, don't kill me, please, don't kill me, I'm innocent. And the guards have to pry his fingers loose from the bars, and they have to, he's kicking and struggling, and they're half carrying, and half dragging him, and throwing him down on the lethal injection gurney. And there was a telling moment in that scene, a journalist picked it up, where as they're throwing their bodies over and they strapping him on the gurney, one guard is like tapping him on the so shoulder, patting him like everything is going to be all right. What happened to those guards when they went home that night? after the killing of Lewis Williams. And of course, they've had the prison officials meet with them, they've had the chaplains meet with them, they've had the prison psychiatrists meet with them, the warden meet with them. Guys, you're just doing your job. And outrage is legitimate, it is ethical. We should be outraged when human beings, innocent human beings are ripped out of life. And that part of us wells up, well, they deserve to die. We gotta push ourselves. We gotta ask ourselves a question, could I do it? Could I kill them? I believe they should die, could I do it? And if there's a part of our soul that holds back and goes, well, I don't know if I could, but they ought to die. There's a part of our soul that has not said yes to the death penalty. Tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, Pennsylvania can live without the death penalty. We don't need the death penalty. And people who are sentenced for, for crimes that, for which they could get the death penalty are not leaving prison in a few short years. You don't have to worry they're gonna get out and come kill again. We don't have to kill anymore. And Pope John Paul in the Gospel of Life said we have a way to defend society because we have prisons. When Thomas Aquinas wrote about the death penalty, and, and legitimized it and said we need it. And when Augustine wrote about it, they didn't have prisons. We have prisons. We don't need to kill. And then the Joseph Odell story, when I do talk about having the dialogue with Pope John Paul, that was one of the things I said, you're 
your holiness, does the Catholic Church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? As the Catechism says, innocent life. It always said innocent life, the dignity of innocent life. When I'm walking with a man, as happened with Patrick, and he's shackled hand and foot, and the guards are all around him, and he says to me, Sister, pray God holds up my legs. He didn't want his knees to buckle. He didn't want to faint on the way to his death. He wanted to walk with dignity. I said, Your Holiness, do we only uphold the dignity of the innocent? There is no dignity in the death of a man who's been rendered defenseless and is taken out and killed. And I said, I call on you. I ask you to strengthen the church's opposition to the death penalty so that it has no exceptions. And you can read in Death of Innocence, you can go right to the index, look up Pope John Paul, go right to the Pope part. And when I did meet him, he kissed me on the forehead here. There's a whole story. They buried him in Palermo. Joseph Odell flew his body over, an executed criminal in Virginia. They flew his body over after they made him an honorary member of Palermo. Three million Italians stayed up listening to their radio the night Joseph Odell was executed. The people of Virginia didn't blink an eye. It was one more execution in Virginia. 10,000 faxes and phone calls and emails came over to Governor George Allen from the Italians. He wanted to kill Joseph Odell. He had all these Italians coming after him. Do not kill Joseph Odell. I mean, they're coming through the faxes, they're coming through the phones. The, the, the governor was going nuts. He couldn't wait for the whole thing to be over. What was it about the Italians and Joseph Odell? They don't even know him. But they, they have a heart for human rights in Italy. I don't know, maybe it's a pasta, maybe it's a faith. I don't know, maybe it's a combination. The faith and the pasta. <laughs> and that is what gave me the occasion to be able to talk to Pope John Paul about the death penalty because I could lay in his lap the pastoral experience of being with human beings and what it means really to kill them. And when Laurie Ers, a woman who tried to save Joseph Odell's life, when she and I were on our way to bury Joseph in Palermo, we stopped in Rome and we saw the Pope. And you're not even conscious of a photographer when the Pope walked in. I mean, the picture of me is I'm looking at the Pope because he looks so tired. You know, and I think, oh my God, the Pope is so sick. And he had his, his hand in his, you know, sash uh, because of the Parkinson's and all. And I go, oh God, the Pope is not going to be long with us. And then next week I hear he's in Jerusalem. I mean, you know, he had a fire and energy in him that he expended his life for us. And so he kissed me on the forehead. He kissed Laurie on the forehead. And so when I visited our oldest sisters in the infirmary, I, I had to tell them, look, uh, I mean, this is a Pope spot. Where the Pope, if any of y'all want to kiss me on a Pope spot, I mean, maybe you'd be able to get a little indulgence or something. I don't know. <laughs> but there he was. And he changed the catechism of the Catholic Church. And we got to get that teaching straight. There are people saying, oh, but no, there's still circumstances. Look at the a gospel of life. He said, yeah, it should be rare, if not non-existent. But there's some cases, there's some cases when you can do it. There are no cases where you can do it anymore. We don't need it to defend life. And the criteria we used for 1,600 years for grave or grievous crimes was cut out of the catechism as a criteria. When Saddam Hussein was hung, Surely then that would be the exception and the word from the Vatican came out loud and clear. It is against the dignity 
of Saddam Hussein to hang him after he's been rendered defenseless. There are no exceptions. We don't have to kill anymore. It's about being pro-life all the way. And of course we want to be for innocent human life where children don't have a voice, the unborn, or children after they're born when they're living in poverty. We want to be for life across the board. But then when the catechism was changed and Pope John Paul came to St. Louis in 99, he stood for the first time and said to us all, no to abortion, no to euthanasia, no to physician-assisted suicide, and no to the death penalty, which is cruel and unnecessary. We don't need to kill anymore. And he added, even those among us who have done terrible crimes have a dignity that must not be taken from them. And in the end, I'm on both arms of this cross because through the graciousness of victims' families, they take me in so that I begin to accompany them and then with this man as he is executed and I walk with him to the electric chair. I had never touched him in all the visits and as the guards are bringing him out, he says to the warden and his voice was kinda, kinda husky like a, a little child. He goes, warden, can I ask you one question? And Ward nods his head like this. He said, can Sister Helen touch my arm? Warden shakes his head like this. And I touched him for the first time, and I put my hand on his shoulder. I didn't realize he was so tall. And I chose words from Isaiah. Could he hear the words? Could I hear words if I'm walking down the middle here to that door where you're going to kill me on the other side? Can you hear things with your ears? Or is it the pounding of your heart? Is that all you hear? Is it, do you say to yourself, these are my last steps? Oh, look, it's blue here. This, do you see things? Do you hear things? I don't know. But if he could hear the words that were coming from Isaiah 43 were, I have called you by your name and you are mine. If you go through fire, I will be with you. If you go through the sea, you will not drown. I have called you by your name. Be not afraid. And my voice was strong, and the grace was there. And he had said to me before, oh, Sister Helen, you can't be there at the end because it could scar you to see this. And all I knew was they were going to kill him. And I couldn't, I couldn't begin to bear the thought that he would have no face to look at. Everybody there would want to be there to see him die. And I said, no, Pat, I don't know what it's going to do to me, but you look at me. Look at my face, and I'll be the face of Christ for you. It becomes so clear. And I said that to the Pope. I said that in the letter. Everything gets crystal clear at a moment like that. What are you for? You're for life or you're for death? You're for love you're for hate? You're for vengeance, even though it's legal, or you're for compassion? And as they led him into the execution chamber and the guards were taking me, they had me by either arm to separate me from him, and I knew it truly was the last moment. And I leaned over, and I kissed him on the back, and I remembered the words of Jesus, and the last will be first, and I said to him, Pat, pray for me. And I meant, remember me to God. Am I trying to make him a hero? I'm, I abhor his crime. I stand in horror and I still know the members of the family and visit them and they still suffer from what they did. Was he a human being and was he a son of God? Yes, he was. I 
see it. I got to witness it. And then he looked at me as they strapped him in. He looked at my face and my hand went out to him. And if you see the film of Dead Man Walking, I worked on every line and every scene with Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon, they got it. And they take you into a journey, it's a perfect Holy Week film, into the heart of the gospel of Jesus. This is what the story is. What are we for? Life or death? Love or hate? Compassion of enter. And that man looked at me from that electric chair and his face is seared in my soul. And then they killed him. And notice in the readings of the Passion that we'll be having soon in the Holy Week as we approach Easter. When they come to the crucifixion, it's like a bare sentence and they crucified him there. What else can you say? And I walked out of that execution chamber that night. It was the middle of the night and I threw up. I had never watched anybody be killed in my eye, right in front of my eyes. Didn't matter it was legal. Didn't matter the Supreme Court said it was fine. Didn't matter 80% of people in 1984 in Louisiana thought it was a good idea. I had witnessed it. And that is what brings me before you tonight. It is what led me to write the book and why I go around the country giving talks just to say, let me bring you close to this. We don't have to keep doing this. And when I threw up and it was at night and there it was outside the prison and a few sisters had come to, to be there with me, nobody was there except for them. I thought I gotta tell the story. The American people, if given half a chance, and if I can bring you close, and people like me who can witness can bring you close, and Curtis can tell you the story, we're making a lot of mistakes, then we can change, and we can end this thing. We can end death tomorrow when we, as a people, begin to say to our leaders, we don't want to kill people anymore, and we can barely trust government to fill the cotton-picking potholes much less to be entrusted with a system to determine who lives and who dies. We can't do it. We can't handle it. And I want to ask you to think about that. And I want to ask you to get the book. And I want to ask you to go to a quiet place and go deeply into the journey. That's an invitation I give to you. You can get both of the books for $25. The money goes to help the moratorium campaign to educate the public. And I hope you'll get it. I want to invite you to go on the journey with me deeply and in a quiet way where you don't have to argue and defend your position and you could be in a position where you can change your mind. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for, we have papers to sign up. I hope you'll all join the Pennsylvanians for alternatives to the death penalty and begin to act. Because until we act, to end the death penalty, we're complicit. We're complicit because we are a democracy. If we are silent, we are complicit. And we need to act. We need to do something to act for life. And to be truly pro-life, for life across the board, can we be that kind of people who love life that much? I believe we can. I invite you to do that. Thank you very much.